Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on the book of Ezra. The text for the sermon is taken from the book of Ezra, chapter 7. But for the sake of time, I will only read the verses 1 through 10. Let us hear the word of God. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May he bless the reading and the preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, the Lord our God is ever faithful to his own. Throughout their history, the people of Israel constantly turned their backs on God. They broke his covenant. They worshipped other gods. They refused to listen to and even killed his prophets. And as punishment for their sins, God afflicted them periodically with sickness and plague. He gave their enemies victory over them in battle. He even sold them into captivity. But he never utterly forsook them. He remained faithful to them to the very end. As he himself said once, he could no more forget them than a mother can forget her nursing child. We have a beautiful illustration of this truth in our text chapter today. The Lord had been good to his people, the people of Judah. He had stirred up the heart of Cyrus to allow them to return to the promised land, and many of them did. And soon after entering the land, they started to rebuild the temple. But due to the opposition of their neighbors, they soon stopped. And for some 16 years, the temple remained unfinished, until the Lord raised up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who encouraged the people to complete it. And at long last, they did, despite the fierce opposition of their enemies. And now, some 56 years later, the Lord visited his people again. And it's to this subject that we turn our attention with the help of the Lord. 
Our theme today is The Lord Renews His Care for His Fledgling Church in Jerusalem. And we'll consider, first of all, the teacher he sent, secondly, the favor he secured, and thirdly, the praise he received. As mentioned, some 56 years had passed between the events of Ezra chapter 6 and those of chapter 7. During this time, much had been accomplished. The temple had been rebuilt, the temple services and sacrifices had been reinstituted, and all of that despite fierce and relentless opposition from Judah's neighbors. Spiritually, however, all was not well. The church in Jerusalem was in need of reformation. We know this because in chapters 9 and 10, we read how the Jews who settled in Jerusalem, as well as their leaders, married heathen women. And this was expressly contrary to the law of Moses. Now, why they did this, we do not know. Perhaps this was a way for them to cement alliances with their neighbors, much like Solomon had done many centuries before this. Whatever the case, it appears that religious life in Jerusalem had become mainly outward. Their religion was mainly a civic religion. It wasn't being lived out. The people were conforming outwardly, to be sure, but inwardly they were living to please themselves. The people needed further instruction. They needed further reformation. They needed someone to teach them the ways of God. And God knew this. And so in his mercy, he sent them a teacher and a reformer. And his name was Ezra. We read about him in our text chapter in verses 1 through 10. And there we learn several things about this man. First of all, we learn that he was a priest and an important priest at that. In verses 1 to 5, we have a record of his genealogy. And there we learn that he could trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron, who was the original high priest. Secondly, we learn here that he was a scribe. At this time, the scribe usually described a government official, a state or private secretary. Most likely, therefore, Ezra was a political official of some sort, which explains why he was known by Artaxerxes, who was the king of the Persian Empire at that time. We also read here that he was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. In other words, Ezra was an expert in the law. This is probably why Artaxerxes singled him out to lead a new exodus from Babylon to the Promised Land. Artaxerxes needed someone in Jerusalem who understood the ways of the Jews, who could interpret the complexity of Jewish law, and who could maintain order and stability. Ezra was the man. Fourthly, he was a courageous man. In verse 6, we read that he had asked King Artaxerxes for permission to go to Jerusalem. Now, we're reminded of a similar incident at the beginning of Nehemiah's life several decades later. You may recall that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. And he had just heard a report that things were not going well in Jerusalem. And this made him sad, even in the king's presence, which was strictly forbidden by law. 
Seeing this, the king asked Nehemiah for an explanation. And at this point, facing possible expulsion or even death, we read that Nehemiah prayed to God and then, cautiously, looking to the Lord, proceeded to tell the king of his heart's burden for Jerusalem. Well, Ezra did the same. He too, at the risk of death, asked the king for a favor. And under the blessing of the Lord, the king granted his request. Fifthly, and perhaps most importantly, we read here that he delighted in the word of God. In verse 10, we have the explanation as to why God's hand was upon Ezra. It was because Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now you notice the progression here in this verse. First of all, it says Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. That means he devoted himself to the study of God's word. Secondly, he not only studied the word, he also did what it said. He modeled what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. Thirdly, he not only studied the word and lived it, he also taught it. In fact, this is precisely why Ezra wanted to make the trip all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem and why God made it possible, because he wanted to teach the people the word of God. One commentator writes this. He says, Ezra, like David, had a heart after God. His love was for God's word and God's ways, not his own. He did not go west because he believed that there would be a better life there. His ambition was not for personal gain and financial improvement. He wanted to see the Lord's people return to a way of life that gave God honor. His focus was the glory of God. The fact that God raised up Ezra and placed him in him a desire to return to Jerusalem is a Beautiful illustration, isn't it, of God's continued care for his church. As we've seen already, God had done so much for his people. And now he sent them a teacher and a reformer, Ezra the scribe, to teach the people his law and to conform them to his will. Now God did this again about 500 years later when he sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. Like Ezra, Christ began his earthly ministry when spiritual life among the Jews was at a very low ebb. Then too, religion had become mainly outward. The religious leaders of the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees, had become legalists. They taught that so long as you outwardly conform to the law of God, you could earn your own righteousness before God. They had, as Paul later wrote, a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. It was a time of great spiritual darkness. But then the Lord Jesus came. And again, like Ezra, he too had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. And this is exactly what he did. He was like a light in the midst of the darkness. He rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees and he taught the people the true meaning of the law. He taught them that there was no way that sinners could ever earn even a part of their righteousness before God. Their only hope was to look to him. He alone could keep the law of God perfectly. (coughs) He alone could pay the penalty for their sins. All who look to him in faith would be saved. Later on, God would send other teachers and reformers, men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox. And after them, he 
raised up the Puritans and the men of the Second Reformation in the Netherlands and John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle and Martin Lloyd-Jones and John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and others. And he still does the same today, although on a much smaller scale, when he sends a faithful pastor to labor in a congregation. You see, every faithful pastor, in a sense, is an Ezra. He is a man who has prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Well, I ask you, does this not speak of the Lord's gracious care for his church? The Lord did not establish his church only to see it fizzle out after a few centuries. No, he cares for his church. He loves his church. And he demonstrates that by sending teachers and preachers of his word. And dear friends, how thankful we should be for each and every one of them with all of their sins and all of their shortcomings. And so the Lord sent his people a teacher. But he did more than that. He also, secondly, secured the king's favor. And that brings us to our second point. As we've seen, Ezra wanted to go to Jerusalem to teach the law of God. Now that desire did not come from himself. It was placed there by the Lord. Just as the Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus to allow the people of Judah to return to the promised land from Babylon, so he stirred up the heart of Ezra. But before he could go, he first had to ask the king. Now, as we observed a few moments ago, this was no small matter. Because the kings of Persia were absolute monarchs. To ask anything of the king was putting your life at risk. And Ezra knew this. But he did so anyway. And he asked the king for permission to return to the land of Judah. And wonderfully, the king agreed. And we read in verse 6 that the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Now, reference here is made to the hand of God. Our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 10 speaks of the hand of God in connection with the doctrine of providence. Providence has to do with how God controls all things that happen in this world, both good and bad. And the Catechism compares that to the hand of God. Now, to be sure, as an invisible spirit, God does not have an actual hand. This is what we call an anthropomorphism. That's a human way of speaking about God. The idea is that just as we use our hands to control and steer and guide, so does God by his providence. We have a wonderful example of that here in our text. God's hand was on Artaxerxes, king of Persia bending his will, inclining him to agree to Ezra's request. But as our text chapter indicates, Artaxerxes did much more than agree to Ezra's request. He also wrote a letter bestowing on him and the people of the Jews many wonderful blessings and favors. And we have a record of that letter in verses 12 to 26 of our text chapter. Now, you'll notice, if you have your Bible open in front of you, all of the wonderful privileges that Artaxerxes bestowed on Ezra. First of all, 
It says, he gave Ezra and whoever of his countrymen wanted to go with him, leave to leave Babylon and to go up to Jerusalem. We read of that in verse 13. And he also gave him authority to inquire into the affairs of Judah and Jerusalem, verse 14, specifically whether the Jews were observing the law of God, whether the temple was built, whether the priests were performing their duties and the sacrifices were being made and the feast days were being observed. And if they weren't, he had to see to it that they were. Thirdly, the letter stated that Ezra was to be given money and that this was to be given freely by the king himself and his counselors and collected among his subjects for the service of the house of God. Verses 15 and 16. Fourthly, he issued a decree ordering the treasurers on that side of the river to supply him with everything that he needed and to take the money from the king's own revenues. Verses 18 to 23. Fifthly, he exempted the priests and the other workers in the temple from paying taxes to the government. Verse 24. Sixthly, he authorized Ezra to nominate and appoint judges and magistrates for all the Jews on that side of the river. Verses 25 and 26. And seventhly and finally, he threatened to punish, even with death, anyone who did not observe the law of God. Now this is astounding. And Artaxerxes here has a lot to teach us about how secular governments should relate to the church. It's not a surprise to anyone that governments today do not pay much attention to the church. In fact, most governments ignore the church altogether. And that's because over the past 200 years or so, we have come to stretch the principle of the separation of church and state too far. Now, make no mistake, there is something valuable about that principle. There are many examples in history where the state unlawfully intruded into the affairs of the church and the church unlawfully intruded into the affairs of the state. But we should not emphasize this principle to the point that church and state have nothing whatsoever to do with each other. The truth is the state still has a responsibility to the church just as the church has a responsibility to the state. Now, that's clearly spelled out in one of the Reformed Confessions, the Belgic Confession in Article 36. There in the second paragraph, we confess that it is the bounden duty of everyone of what state, quality, or condition soever he may be to subject himself to the magistrates or the government, to pay tribute, to show due honor and respect to them, and to obey them in all things which are not repugnant or contrary to the word of God to supplicate for them in their prayers that God may rule and guide them in all their ways and that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. But we also confess that the office of the magistrate or the government is not only to punish those who do evil and protect those who do good, but also, and I quote again from the Belgian Confession, to protect the sacred ministry and thus may remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship, that the kingdom of Antichrist may be thus destroyed and the kingdom of Christ promoted. And the confession goes on to say this, They must therefore countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshipped by everyone as he commands in his word. Now, there's been some discussion in Reformed churches about whether the government has a responsibility 
to, as the Belgian Confession says, to remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship. Some say on the principle of the separation of church and state that that's going too far. But there's no dispute over the rest of the statement, namely that the government must countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshipped by everyone as he commands in his word. And it's for good reason that this is not contested, because this is thoroughly scriptural. And we have a wonderful example of this very principle here in our text. Here was Artaxerxes, a pagan king no less, a king who worshipped pagan gods, not intruding into the affairs of the church, but rather doing everything in his power to ensure that the church could function without hindrance and even passing laws that will enable her to flourish. Now, sadly, governments today in our post-Christian, secularized world have totally lost sight of this. And rather than help and assist the church, governments today tend to stand in the way of the church, even openly opposing the church at times, hindering her from carrying out her God-given task and responsibility, such as when the government unilaterally and arbitrarily restricted and even outlawed the public worship of God in various places. Now, how governments today need to take lessons from this pagan king, Artaxerxes. At any rate, the Lord stirred up the heart of Artaxerxes to bestow great favors on the church. But you know, there's one who bestows even greater favors, and that is the greater Artaxerxes, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like Artaxerxes, he continues to bestow blessings upon his church. The greatest blessing was the gift of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on the day of Pentecost. For it is by the Holy Spirit that sinners are called and regenerated, converted, justified, sanctified, and glorified. It's by the Holy Spirit that we produce the fruit of the Spirit to the glory of God. But he also bestows other blessings as well. Ephesians 4 verse 8, Paul quoting Psalm 68 verse 18 says this, Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now, what are those gifts that he gave? Well, Paul tells us in verses 11 and 12, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So office bearers, like Ezra, are gifts of the ascended Christ to his church. But in addition to this, we can also think of the spiritual gifts that Christ, through his Holy Spirit, bestows on his people. We think of the gift of leadership, the gift of empathy, the gift of encouragement and hospitality and counseling and, and so many others. And we can think, too, of how the Lord Jesus Christ, to this day, continues to gather, defend, and preserve his church and will continue to do so until he comes again. Oh, yes, the Lord Jesus bestows on his church blessing after blessing after blessing. And does that also demonstrate how the Lord cares for his church? How wonderful to be ruled by King Jesus. Now this leaves the question, how should we respond to these things? And that brings us to our third and final point. Having recounted the many blessings that the Lord bestowed on him and his people, Ezra in verses 27 and 28 bursts forth in praise and thanksgiving to God. And he he writes this, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended to me 
before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Notice Ezra here doesn't bless the king. Certainly doesn't bless himself. No, he blesses the Lord. He gives all the glory to God. And rightly so. Because everything that happens in this chapter is his work. He is the one who stirred up the heart of Ezra to go to Jerusalem. He is the one who stirred up the heart of Artaxerxes to pass laws favoring the church and to allow Ezra to go to Jerusalem. Therefore, all the honor and all the glory belongs to him. Whatever Ezra accomplished, he could not have done it without God. But you'll notice what Ezra blesses God for. Two things. First of all, for putting it into the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord. Now the word beautify here means to make glorious. And this is what God did through Ezra and Artaxerxes. He made his church glorious before the world. The church is still glorious today. It doesn't appear that way to be sure. The church, especially in the Western world, appears to be weak and anemic. But where the church is faithful, she is glorious. Perhaps not in the eyes of men, but certainly in the eyes of God. And one day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, she shall be supremely glorious. For when he comes, she will stand before him as a bride adorned for her husband, without spot or wrinkle, and she shall be seated with him on his throne, and she shall live and reign with him forever. Oh, blessed be God for beautifying his church. Secondly, Ezra blessed God for his mercy. Specifically, the mercy he extended to him, enabling him to gain the confidence of the king and his counselors and all the king's mighty princes. Now, the word mercy here is an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word chesed, which means covenant faithfulness or loyalty. Ezra here acknowledges that it was not owing to anything in him that he was so successful. It was solely owing to the covenant faithfulness of his God. You see, the Lord had entered into covenant with Ezra and with all of the Jews. He had promised to be his God and their God. And that means he would never leave him or forsake him or his people. He was bound to him and his people by an unbreakable covenant bond. And that is still the case today. The Lord has also entered into covenant with believers and with their children. And he has promised to be our God. And he has adopted us to be his people. Therefore, beloved, we need not fear. Despite great opposition that we see in the world today, he will continue to build and beautify his church so that not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against it. And Ezra understood this. And that's why he was encouraged, as he says in verse 28. And dear friends, we may be encouraged too. The opposition that we face in the world is indeed great. And at times we may even wonder if the church is even going to survive. But listen, God is on our side. And he will continue to gather, defend, and preserve his church until he comes again. And what a glorious day that will be, for then all opposition will cease, and the church will be at rest, and he will receive the glory due his name. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you are blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. 
Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's all one word, banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. That's www.frcna.org. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.